Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. It's a unique collaboration of electronic legends and indie favourites, the past and present, combining to create something futuristic and extraordinary. La Planète Sauvage, the soundtrack to an iconic 1973 film, is a project that sees the radiophonic workshop and Stealing Sheep joining forces for an album released to mark 2021's Delia Derbyshire Day. And this July, it comes to Blue Dot for a very special performance on the Sunday of this year's festival. This is the Blue Dot Podcast with the Radiophonic Workshop and Stealing Sheep. Bex and Emily from Stealing Sheep and from the Radiophonic Workshop, Bob Erland and Roger Lim. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. Hello. Hello. Hello, all. (laughs) Bex, who brought you guys together? So, um, Nina Hervé, I think it was her pipe dream. Um, She's from Jersey um, and she was kind of working for the Broncage Film Festival, which is where we did the first premiere. Um, And I think, yeah, it was kind of like, I think she even suggested the film. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think it was like she put it forward and we'd actually recently watched the film. So it was like, yes, this seems like a good idea. Bob, is that how you remember it? Uh, Vaguely, it's quite a long time ago, the actual original performance. So um, yeah, my memory's not that great. We sort of got involved slightly after that. We got a message sort of leading on from that conversation, asking us if we wanted to do it. Uh, And then that's, yeah, that's what happened. Roger, for context, can you provide a brief history of the Radiophonic Workshop? Well, I think the Radiophonic Workshop, uh, yes, started in late 50s, I think it was. I wasn't around at the time, but uh, it gradually grew during the 60s and got involved with all sorts of iconic shows. Doctor Who, of course, is the one that is mainly mentioned. And then during the 70s and 80s, it grew. There were probably about six composers at one point, all working on a whole range of stuff, not just science fiction and creepy stuff, but kids' programmes. Uh, well, I could give you a whole list, but that would take all day. Uh, then in about uh, nine, late 80s, 90s, well, the BBC changed and the Radiophonic Workshop was eventually phased out. Uh, somebody said its reputation was high, but the cost of running it was even higher. So it was gradually closed down and finally closed in uh, 1997, I think. So how am I talking to you now if there is no Radiophonic Workshop? Well, the, what happened was about 10 years or so after the place closed down, we kept in touch and we ch- talked about various things that we'd done. The idea came up that um, because there was a considerable residual interest, we might say, uh, in the work of the Radiophonic Workshop, uh, we would get together and present a concert. Uh, there were a couple of concerts. One was the famous Quarry concert. And then in um, 2009, I think it was, um, we did a big concert at the Roundhouse. And on the basis of that, we thought, well, let's keep going and with the encouragement of our producer um, and manager. And we've probably done about 50 or so concerts since then, including festivals. Uh, we've done the Blue Dot a couple of times and Glastonbury. And so we keep the memory of the workshop alive, but the workshop itself disappeared in a puff of smoke ooh, 25 years ago. When did you join? I suppose I joined in about 74, 1974. Yes, that's right. I'd heard about it and I was doing other jobs in the BBC before I joined the workshop. Uh, I was in the BBC for 10 years or so, uh, doing a whole range of stuff, technical um, operator. Then I was a newsreader and then I was a TV announcer. Well, voiceovers anyway. 
So that's how I came to um, be involved with this project, doing the voiceover. I, my input, as far as electronic music is concerned, is quite small, but I appear to be the voiceover. <laughs> what did the job <laughs> advert say? Well, of course, I'd been there on attachment. I'd, I'd done three months' uh, work there, including doing some signature tunes. So I knew pretty well what uh, what was going on there. So um, the advert says, job going at workshop. And so I applied in the normal way, and there was a bit of competition. But because I'd been there before on attachment, um, I stood a good chance and was lucky enough to land the job. And what do you consider your most notable work with the workshop? Hmm. Tricky one, that. Uh, I, I worked on a whole lot of stuff for kids, uh, not just children's programs, but schools programs, because we discovered, and well, it's my view, that electronic music is cuts through directly to people. You know, the, you, if you try and involve a kid with music, it's no good playing a, a, something on a violin or on a cello. They, they want something a bit more direct. And so this is what I did. I did quite a lot of uh, stories for kids doing incidental music. And I also wrote a lot of what you might call educational songs, songs to do with, uh, this is schools programs, to do with um, punctuation and uh, capital letters and full stops and things like that, which were a lot of fun to do. And I think I probably, I did count them once. I wrote, a, I think it was 150 teaching songs, something like that. So if, if you want my legacy, that's probably it. Of course, I worked on Doctor Who um, in the uh, early 80s. And most people these days want to talk about Doctor Who. And in fact, in this year already, I think I've done three interviews, including one at the BFI. And they said, now, Roger, your involvement in the Doctor Who. And I, I would say, look, this was 40 years ago. Do, do you want to talk about it? Oh, yes, we want to talk about it. Well, as you bring it up, uh, Roger, what was it like working on Doctor Who? It's, uh, well, you realise, <laughs> first you realise <clears throat> there's a sort of legacy. Um, and Doctor Who, because it's any project, has to change, I think, to stay uh, to stay alive. And uh, there was a big change in about 1980, which is when I started. Uh, John Nathan Turner took over as producer, and he reshaped Doctor Who in the way he wanted it. Uh, and a brand new uh, uh, version of the signature tune was done by Peter Howell, one of my colleagues at the Radio Funny Workshop, and that was really a, a masterwork. I think he spent two weeks doing something along those lines. And at that point, the instead of the music going to other outside composers, it all came to the workshop. And for five years, we worked on it. What was it like? Challenging. I think I worked on 10 stories. You relied a lot on your director um, and you had to have a good um, relationship with your director. Quite often, the director would say, look, I know nothing at all about music, but I know it when I know it'll be right when I hear it. And sometimes they would say, um, it's an awkward moment at this point. We haven't got the we haven't got the pictures to cover it. Can you can you do some music to help us through this awkward moment? That didn't happen very often, but it, uh, everybody had that experience, I think. Um, as I said, director very important. Having a good relationship with your director and knowing what he or she is looking for that that's uh, the key to any working on any drama. I think not just Doctor Who. The, Doctor Who is just another drama, but a rather special one. Emily, when did you first get into electronic music yourself? Me? <laughs> um, well, probably since the age of, I don't know, when, when I first got into music when I was really young, probably about sort of 14, 15. You know, I used to listen to all my mum's tapes and things like that and, you know, whatever I could really about the house. 
Do you know when you might have been aware for the first time of what the Radiophonic Workshop did? Probably when I was like in my 20s, early 20s, because um, I remember listening to like the white noise and then hearing like Delia Derbyshire stuff and like some kind of avant-garde kind of electronic sounds and kind of asking what's what is this so yeah quite a while you know 20 years ago or something like that but I might not have really been as versed in it as I became through this project and being in Steel and Sheep. Bob tell me about Delia Derbyshire for those that don't know why was she such a pioneer? Um, It's hard to sum up really she's just did such incredible music with anything she could find and just a huge imagination that sort of goes beyond anything you think you could think up um, but it really manages to capture your imagination. Her uh, Hoob theme tune is just, it still sounds incredible. Uh, when you play it over good speakers, it sounds amazing. It's huge and big and lots of depth to it and just makes you instantly go to that place of Doctor Who and the future and the past and time travel and it manages to sort of cover all of those things. And her other output is equally good. It's just so much depth and interest to it, I think. Roger, did you ever get to work with her? Oh, yes. Got to know her very well. Uh, she was there when I first went to the workshop. I think she was probably past her prime, shall we say, gently. She did a lot of wonderful work in the 60s. By the time the 70s come, there was a bit of a change going on at the workshop. There was less reliance on tape manipulation, which was her forte. And synths were arriving, multi-track tapes were arriving. And but as I say, she and I got on very well. I used to drive her to film dubs and that sort of thing. And occasionally she would come to my jazz gigs. I would be playing in some pub near where she was and she she would come. Uh, and we went to concerts together. So all in all, we were very good buddies for, for a time, but it, it was rather sad. Well, sad is, but um, she, at that time, uh, this would be 72, 73, she was not really anymore coming up with startlingly new things she'd uh, she was like a wonderful rocket <laughs> in the sky but what happens to rockets they they fade and go away uh, but she was still a- acutely aware of sound and music but she somehow or other deadlines were a problem for her and deadlines became more and more important around about that time particularly working for tv so uh yes uh, I- i've got very happy memories of working with delia I've got a question that I'd love you all to answer, and Bex first. Are you obsessed with sound? Um, I think the short answer is yes. <laughs> Although I probably don't want everyone to know. Um, yeah, recently I did uh, look at my hard drive and the amount of uh, sort of samples that I've been either capturing or downloading or finding in some way. And I actually thought if somebody else saw this, they'd think I had a problem. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, I guess it's it's a habit that's be- that sort of becomes an obsession. As I think for all of us, I mean, I know for all of us, um, in different ways. You know, I think more so now. Uh, I'm relying less on technology, and I want it to be real time sound. Um, and I think that's probably a result of like being contained in a computer for the whole of lockdown and only being able to experience sound in that context. And I now I'm have this huge craving for like live music being played but yeah I mean sound is yeah we're all fanatic about sound. Emily? Um, yeah I mean I think that it's just been it's just something you have your whole life isn't it so it's something that's all I mean obviously not if you have struggle with hearing or something it isn't or you know but 
it's just all I've just always had it but I think I'm always trying to find feeling within sound so I'm always looking for like how that would make me feel so I'm always sort of looking for that if I'm playing an instrument or someone is playing an instrument or so with synths and things you know you're always you can just create so much feeling through it which is what that's kind of what I'm interested in Bob <laughs> are you obsessed with sound uh yeah very much so I think um <laughs> So following on for that, it is very evocative. It kind of certain sounds, you hear them and it can take you straight to a place. Um, and um, when you add music to that as well, the sort of combination of the, the sound and the, the melody that's being played could really sort of conjure up a memory or or make you excited for something or scared about something or, or whatever emotion you want to, to use. Roger, you've spent, uh, well, a lifetime playing with sound in different ways. Listening to the others, I'm probably slightly less uh, obsessed by it. On the other hand, when I was at the workshop, I used to uh, collect sounds, and I think we all still do that. Bob does it. I know that uh, Kieran, our percussionist, does it. I mean, for example, I was going to uh, going shopping at Bread Cross, and I happened to be walking past a gate, and I tapped it with the key, and it had this wonderful ringing sound. Beautiful. I tapped it again, and tapped it in a different place, and there was a different ringing sound. And I thought, this is wonderful. So instead of going shopping, I dashed home, got my tape recorder with microphone, and came out with a little hammer and uh, did uh, <laughs> s- several recordings of this. And I use this all the time, you know, um, for example, uh, incorporated occasionally in music, but mainly for sound effects, uh, the sound of a, uh, a prison door slamming shut or the gates of heaven opening or something like that. So... I do collect sounds, still do. Um, and uh, so I suppose I am slightly um, obsessed by sound. But going back to my uh, announcement days, I'm more obsessed with people getting pronunciation uh, right and being the right person for the job. Sometimes I hear a continuity announcement of the job I used to do, and I think to myself, what did she say? What did he say? Why did they get that job? I can't quite work out what's going on. So. Uh, at the age of 80, I suppose I'm allowed to have a little bit of a thought of those sorts of thoughts. It seems very unfair now that I've got the name of the film that you've done the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. It seems very unfair that I've now got to say that the film that you've reimagined the soundtrack for between you is La Planète Sauvage. Roger, is that OK for you? La Planète Sauvage, I suppose. All right. I'm presuming it's French. Yeah. So you say it with a French accent, La Planète Sauvage. A sci-fi animation um, from 1973. So, Bex, Emily, you reimagined the soundtrack with the workshop, and this was for last year's Delia Derbyshire Day. So you've already said why you chose this film, but what was the original soundtrack like, and how did you avoid replicating it? Bex? Yeah, we were just talking about that because we were already big fans um, of Elaine Gruger. Gruger? That's it, we wanted to sort this pronunciation. Pronunciation. Um, Elaine Gruger, Alain Gruger, Gauguin. He's a French composer, so um, yeah, we hope that that's the right pronunciation, but um, he's... The, the music of the original is fantastic. And we did use it as a reference point, not to create, uh, recreate the kind of um, motifs that were already there, but just to sort of, what was it? We, we tried to use it. We tried to have like recurring motifs in the same way that, that the original composition did have. So different um, repeat, repeated phrases throughout the film. Um, so that you could have that sense of like revisiting nostalgia. Yeah. Like certain scenes with like, 
the drugs in meditating or the animals or the the arms in we would kind of like have things that would represent them so it would kind of reoccur and we could have this thread that would hold it together a little bit otherwise it could have just been like a new bit of music for each section and with Alan Gorgate, sorry I can't say it Roger's put you under too much pressure now (laughs) I know, but his soundtrack is really like repetitive, but it's really good. It's kind of like kind of a bit rocky, isn't it? And it's sort of got that clave thing running through it. And it's just all variations. It's quite jazzy, really, isn't it? Have you guys listened to that? I have heard it in the past. Yes, that's right. I admired it, but I think it's... uh... I was listening to so many other stuff at the time, but I haven't really re-listened to it um, in the past uh, a few months. But I must say, at this point, it ought to be pointed out that I think the girls from Stealing Sheep have done 95% of the work on this. Uh, and we were there contributing and, and, and very happy to contribute, but I really admire the, the work that the girls put into it. So, Bob, how did the collaboration work? So I think what we kind of took on, um, so the sheep sort of covered the musical elements and possibly a bit more of kind of the emotional content um, and how that kind of linked. And then we did the sort of bit where it's, where the sound effects sort of cross over into being the score. So it's partly the atmosphere and what's going on in the scene, but it is kind of musical and ambient and kind of matches musically. So it kind of, there is a crossover between them. Uh, It was quite hard because there's a lot of kind of spot effects as well, like footsteps and things like that. And we had to work out where we stopped. Do we do every (laughs) single footstep and little rustle of something moving? Or we chose to sort of pick the more sort of poignant moments to kind of... Uh, bring out what are your favorite moments i quite like there was a bit with the uh crystals kind of growing uh and he's kind of dancing around amongst them and they kind of um they're all smashing and making these tinkling noises and um at the time i was uh taking the tiles down in a bathroom so i set a microphone up while i was working taking these tiles down and recording the sounds cracking and smashing and that's what i made the sounds of the crystals out of by sort of pitching them up and down and so I kind of managed to kind of get a bit extra out of that work of doing up my bathroom. <laughs> Did you know that, Emily? I didn't know that, actually. That's news to me. Kept yeah. that one quiet, Bob. <laughs> I always assumed that you would have a bank of recordings for any eventuality. So, Bob, are you like Roger in the way that he described his visit to Brent Cross, where you're always listening for new sounds? Oh, yeah. Uh, literally yesterday I spent 10 minutes recording a creaking door because it sounded amazing. <laughs> Um, but it was actually in, there was someone in a studio next door as well. So there was like a rumble of their music coming through and this sort of really weird kind of, uh, it's hard to describe. It didn't sound like a squeaking door, but the way it squeaked was really interesting. So that will probably make it into a, a track at some point. We need to hear that. <laughs> Bex and Emily, do you ever do that? Go out field recording? I, well, are you going to talk about my tap? No. Go on, you talk <laughs> about No, I have a really musical tap, like bathroom tap. Um, but I mean, like, rhythmically interesting <laughs> as well. Like, it, it really is, like, it's going to find its way into a record. But um, we don't do field recordings, really, do we? Well, funnily enough, yes. yesterday <laughs> we were doing a little bit of, like, um, we were we were doing um, some uh, an interview for, what's it for? For Chris Hawkins. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're doing an interview, so we're doing, like, sound around where we work, and there's lots of, like, because we work in a factory, there's loads of, like, workshops. But we also got... Can you hear this? Can you hear that, guys? Bird song. Yeah. This is Sefton Park. So we do do... I think we do do that, and even with, like, that music that we 
made for a wow machine we had some stereo derbyshire sounds that we were allowed to use for that yeah we we got the gateway into it really through working with these guys yeah and um i think so i don't know how we ended up with those delia derbyshire uh sounds but we have like a huge effects bank which is a lot of like machine based foley out of that we also made a new whole entire conceptual piece called wow machine um where we sort of collaborated with those sounds um to create a conceptual wow machine basically and they're sort of like creating the drum sounds for that and like explode you know they're sort of create yeah yeah Emily, what do you think you learned from working with the Radiophonic Workshop? I think I learned sort of about thinking about something in a bigger, bigger picture type way, you know, having a like a bigger overall viewing of something. And then I think it opened the doorway for us quite a lot in how to write things in more of a kind of responsive way. We did some other pieces after that, like what we called Legs, where we had dancers. And so I think I learned about creating sort of like a maybe more of a narrative and then also just seeing how they worked like when we did the day in Jersey it was pretty cool because they had like biting an apple doing like foley sounds and then an umbrella for the bird's wings and just kind of like quite humorous and sort of you know and just looking at their whole back catalogue and going to see them live you know it's just kind of like really really inspiring you know for us isn't it you know Take it away, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, I mean, we watched, um, the, there was like a performance that uh, the Radiophonic Workshop did in Jersey as well with the big um, kind of TARDIS projection on a castle. Um, and that was like just such an incredible kind of concept and thing to watch. Um, and all of the nostalgic music that they had created for film uh, and for TV that they were playing live and we were sort of in the pit with them watching them playing on the synths and it was yeah like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy was really like memorable and just like these anthemic this music that's just influenced everyone's life and we covered zibzi oh yeah we did a delia derbyshire tune um as well because like she created loads of her own music which you can find i mean it's it wasn't very well uh, publicised, really, but I think that's like outside of the Radiophonic Workshop. She actually, she's sort of perceived as a pioneer of techno because of the way that she created music, because it was, you know, because she used tape and she was a brilliant mathematician. So it was all very precise. She cut the tape up and it sort of created like what we now listen to, you know, modern day techno, which is created in like software. She was creating it manually with tape, like literally like meters and meters of tape that she was cutting up. And it's it's pretty fascinating, the whole method behind it, what she was creating and then, you know, how how that's influenced today's music. It's interesting. I sort of think of electronic music as quite serious. But um, Bex, Emily, you treat it with a sense of fun, don't you? (laughs) I try to. There's been many tears (laughs) (laughs) over the years. No, we we try to. It is fun. It is fun. Yeah, totally. Yeah, to- yeah. Roger, did you learn anything <laughs> from working with the sheep? I think I did. Yes. Once again, a collaborating thing. Uh, my um, main contribution was uh, doing the um, narration, the voice. I didn't really do any uh, of the electronic music or the effects. We, you know, we saw them uh, at Broncage in um, Jersey. And I think, from what I remember, my narration was pre-recorded. 
So, in fact, although I was there, I think my contribution was not live. I wasn't I hadn't have the, uh, the live voice, unlike what we're going to do at Blue Dot, which is uh, I should be doing the narration live. Oh. I, I do. I do remember recording that um, piece uh, probably perhaps at least a week or 10 days before um, at my home studio, I suppose it was. Or no, we were have we were rehearsing. That's what it was. We hired a rehearsal room um, and. Um, I said, they said, look, here's the narration of this film. Um, can you do the narration? And my, you know, if you're doing voiceovers and that sort of thing, the first question is, who am I? What is my voice like? Am I old? Am I young? Have I got a funny foreign accent? And nobody knew. I mean, it was, um, nobody was even prepared to make a guess. So in the end, I did it completely... Um, not flat exactly, but as a reportage. So I didn't try to act it at all. I didn't try to change the pace, but I tried to make it personal. So that was my approach to it. As far as working with the Stealing Sheep, I've always admired their work, but I can't say that I worked directly with them. I'm looking forward to that. How's it going to be at Blue Dot, Emily? Well, I'm really excited about it. Got to, um, I'm going to like, because I was playing lap steel and uh, guitar, which I haven't played for about five years now because I've been playing the bass guitar instead so I'm gonna kind of like get those instruments out and um but I just wanted to say something that was really inspiring is the actual voiceover because we have kind of taken that sort of element into our sort of music haven't we and we've had a female voiceover like in that film actually there's a female in the original and Roger's voice I think I think your voiceover was was brilliant and I like that you say it was kind of like a reportage aspect to it because I think it's I think it was good that it remained quite sort of neutral and it was quite personable, I thought, too. But we've sort of taken that on board a little bit, haven't we? The voiceover. Sorry, I'm going on a tangent here. How's the choreography going to be then, Bex, for the show at Blue Dot? I guess because the film is being screened, so we don't want to distract from the actual, you know, message of the film and the animation itself, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, and I think that we'll probably have some element of, like, interesting lighting on stage. Um, but, yeah, and we'll be playing, obviously, in interesting things that I hope <laughs> the audience will enjoy. But um, I guess, like, a lot of Stealing Sheep's work has a very performative element to it. But this already has so much, you know, rich content to yeah. be absorbed mm-hmm. in. Um, and, you know, we probably will have a costume element but uh, nothing too, like, distracting. Um, and, like, I guess we're so involved in, like, playing the music of this one uh, as well that the, we won't have time to be doing much choreography. Yeah, we're like, Christ! <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we're, we're carrying the whole soundtrack, so we need to really focus on that. <laughs> Bob, so much of what you do is in the studio. Do you like performing? Yeah, it's my sort of, it's where I started really, um, playing live um, from like the age of 15 um, and sort of consistently since then. But I, I love both sides. I love being in the studio and I love taking what you've done in the studio onto the stage because that's a sort of added kind of challenge to get those sounds that you can spend hours on with all the equipment and, you know, all the time in the world to get right. Trying to do those, sort of represent them on stage is is more challenging than just sort of playing a song, as it were. Not to do that down, that's obviously equally valid. <laughs> Roger, a few years ago at Blue Dot, you joined Orbital on stage for a, a very special performance of the Doctor Who theme. Can you remember that night? 
Yes, I can. I, I can remember it. And uh, we played in front of a, an even bigger crowd than we had uh, earlier in the day. The one abiding memory of it, I think it was the noisiest, loudest place I've ever been in my life on that stage with enormous numbers of extremely large speakers. In fact, I, I think we, we all wear, wore um, earplugs, ear defenders at the time. Actually playing with them, um, it, was, it was great. Uh, we went up there and uh, the guys from Orbital said, look, this is your little patch here. That's your, if you turn that knob, that will happen. If you turn that knob, that will happen. So we were up there with uh, these strange glasses on. And it was, uh, I'm not quite sure what the word is, transcendental i mean I, I can remember it but it was a bit more like a, a funny dream rather than the real thing but the abiding memory is the noise <laughs> like an out-of-body experience roger yeah bex does jodrell bank performing under the giant space telescope feel like the perfect setting for this yes <laughs> it does. um yeah it's an amazing place i've been visiting it since i was a child uh, have you no. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, maybe I lived a, l- a little bit closer to that area, but um, it's so exciting to be there and to be performing some sci-fi soundtrack. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's really amazing to yeah. see on the flesh. We absolutely cannot wait. Thank you so much, Bex and Emily from Stealing Sheep. And from the Radiophonic Workshop, thank you to Bob Erland and the legend that is Roger Lim. Bex, Emily, Bob, Roger. Thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Dot Podcast. Thank you. Okay, bye for now. You've been listening to the Blue Dot Podcast. Day and weekend tickets are on sale now. Explore the weekend at discoverthebluedot.com. Listener.